Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. It was towards the end of the Lord Jesus' ministry when his disciples were showing him the buildings of the temple as they were leaving the temple. It says in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Those buildings were quite impressive. The disciples watched the construction take place most of their lives. They could esteem a sense of ownership of these buildings in the sense that they provided money for the construction of the buildings. The buildings were places where they could go and visit and be a part of the worship of the living God. But Jesus responded in verse 2, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. After all this time, after watching these buildings go up, after contributing towards their construction, and after assuming a sense of ownership of them, being a part of the Jewish society there, being a part of the worship that took place in these buildings, for Jesus to say this in response to them showing him all the great things about these buildings, their response was a bit delayed. They spoke with him again when he went up to the Mount of Olives about these things, there certainly would be an opportunity for shock in light of these circumstances that the disciples were so impressed and they wanted Jesus to be impressed. And Jesus simply says, you know what, these might very well be impressive, but they're not going to be here. They're going to be thrown to the ground. This certainly would be difficult for the disciples to deal with, for them to respond to, considering all of the effort that was placed into these buildings. Should they continue to support their construction if the buildings are just simply going to be torn down, all of the stones disassembled and just thrown aside, to what degree would they now be willing to be a part of the continual construction of these buildings, and to what degree would they have an appreciation for their presence, knowing that they are not going to stand as long as they probably thought that these buildings would stand? How would they cope with that? In what way... Would they be able to deal with that? Well, one way is to just simply ask Jesus, so how long do you suppose it will be? I mean, if it's going to be a long time, then we could still enjoy them for a period of time. But if it's going to happen quite soon, then maybe this is something that we should be concerned about because it could have something to do with how we view these buildings and how we participate in the activities that are taking place within these buildings. Maybe we should consider what Jesus has to say. And so in verse 3, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They asked him three questions, and he did address these questions. But he did so by speaking a number of parables, by saying that these are some ways that you can understand 
the answers to your questions. When will these things be? Well, effectively, you're not going to know. What will be the sign of your coming? Well, you're not going to really know what that is either. You'll know a few things, but you are not going to necessarily know enough in order to have confidence that you will know exactly when I will be coming. When will the end of the age take place? What will be the signs of the end of the age? Well, again, he did give some hints. He did give some things that we could look at, that we could consider, and that we could perhaps look for. Unfortunately, these are things that have happened on many occasions. Or more precisely, it would be better to say that there have been many occasions in history where we could say that these hints or these signs that he suggested were adequate, that there was enough that was taking place that would fulfill what he described. And yet the end did not come. He did not come. The end of the age did not occur. So we are still waiting, even though we have had a number of occasions when we could have said that this was definitely it, that the Lord Jesus is coming. Even in recent times, we have had many occasions during the wars that have taken place. For the past hundred years, we could say that the return of the Lord is certainly imminent. And I believe that in a way, we could say that it is imminent. We could very well say that it is the end of the age, that we have signs of His coming. But does that mean that He's going to be here tomorrow morning? Does that mean that He's going to be here next year? He might. I understand that He might. But for us to assume that He will, because the signs are adequate, to me can lead to some disappointment. He might delay. He might very well delay a lot longer than we would perhaps anticipate. Maybe it will be another 50 years or another 100 years or several hundreds of years. It could be still some time in the future. I'm sure we will have more opportunities for these kinds of events to unfold that would also qualify to fulfill what he described as the signs that would give us an indication that the end is soon to come, that he will soon return, that it will be the end of the age. I do believe that the signs we have seen are certainly adequate, and I do believe also that if he does not return, that the ones that we will see in the future will also be adequate. Why is it that people want to know when he is going to return? Well, considering this conversation... I believe that they were concerned about the buildings. They were very interested in their work, in their efforts. They were interested in enjoying the buildings that were under construction still, those that had been completed. I believe that they did have a sincere interest in wanting to enjoy that which was there. People are often concerned about the return of the Lord Jesus because they want to enjoy the world that we are a part of. They want to enjoy wealth that perhaps they have accumulated, or they want to achieve the goals that they have set for themselves. They might have a very comfortable life, especially as they compare their life with others, and they may not be interested in giving that up anytime soon. They might not be experiencing significant tribulations or sufferings. And so the imminent return of the Lord Jesus may not have the same meaning as it would have for someone who is experiencing significant tribulation or significant loss, or might very well be in the middle of some war that's taking place. So others might have an interest in the return of the Lord Jesus because they don't have much of a future ahead of them. 
they don't see that they're going to be able to enjoy their life as much as they would prefer. And so they would like to see the return of the Lord Jesus. They would like to see the end of the age. There have been a few occasions when I've spoken with people who are having a really hard time. They may have lost their job, or they may be experiencing a serious medical condition of some kind, and they they talk with me and they say, you know, this would be a really good time for the Lord Jesus to return. This would be a good time before my mortgage payment is due, before I have to figure out how to feed my children. This would really be a convenient time for him to return so that I don't have to continue to face all of the uncertainty that I am faced with to deal with the failure and the consequences of the circumstances that I am in. These are wonderful opportunities for people to look for the return of the Lord Jesus. It certainly would be a convenient time for many people. And so people do have an interest in trying to determine when he might return, because it does help them to deal with the circumstances that they are faced with in life, either because they are having trouble overcoming circumstances in their life, or they are concerned about the goals that they might set, what kind of effort they might put into things in order to achieve things, in order to build things, in order to construct things like these buildings. What for if they're just simply going to be torn down? Why bother being involved in the social or political aspects of life when the Lord Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom really soon? These are important concerns. But in addition to that, there are some religious concerns. Religious concerns in the sense that people will often live their lives trying to get their flesh under control, and they may have a distinct interest in knowing when the Lord Jesus might return because they want to be ready spiritually. They want to be ready religiously speaking. They want to be sure that they are in a condition such that they will not be ashamed when the Lord Jesus returns. This is another topic of interest for a lot of people. They are very concerned about being ready, being ready spiritually, being ready emotionally, being able to stand before the Lord without guilt because of their sin, because of what they are doing, or because of what they are not doing. And they would prefer that the Lord Jesus delay a little longer so that they could hopefully eventually feel that they are a little bit better prepared for his return. One of the parables that he uses in this conversation that follows is the parable of the ten virgins. This is a wonderful opportunity for people to consider these issues, and of course a wonderful opportunity to feel very concerned about to what degree are you really ready for him to return. Beginning in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. What people will tend to do is they will read this and they will start to have concern about whether or not they're ready. How will you know if you are ready? He says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. He says, You're not going to know when I come. I'm not going to answer your question in a way that you are going to feel satisfied with my answer. He just simply told the disciples that, Yes, I'm coming back, and you're not going to know. There will be an end of the age, but you're not going to know when it's going to happen. You're not going to know when all the buildings are taken down from the temple and thrown aside. You're not going to know when that is going to happen, but it will happen. Be ready for when it happens. Well, this can lead to a lot of concern. I mean, how will you know if you're ready for when the Lord Jesus returns? How do you know you're going to be ready so that you will have a place at the party? This can be a great concern for a lot of people, especially if they believe that this criteria requires them to do something. If you have to do something in order to get ready so that you are prepared in such a way that the Lord will allow you to be a part of his kingdom, if you have to do something, then you had better identify what that is that you need to do and you better get busy doing it. This is how most people today are reading this parable found in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, the parable of the ten virgins. Most people are reading it from that point of view. They are asking the question, how can I be sure that I have enough oil? If it is necessary for you to have enough oil, then you had better figure out how you are going to accomplish that, especially if he delays his coming. This will lead us to the question of, what is the oil? Now, in most cases, when you speak with a Christian leader, a teacher, a pastor, when you read in a book about the ten virgins, you will most likely find that people will agree that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. I certainly do believe that, that the oil is a symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit. If a person is confronted with that definition of the oil that Jesus is referring to, I would certainly be surprised if they did not agree that that is what it represents. But is that what people really believe? In general, what I have found is that a lot of people do not believe that, that there are many people who believe something else. They will, of course, agree when confronted that this does represent the Holy Spirit. However, that is not all that they believe. They also believe that this represents the works that you do. It represents the degree of sin that you might have in your life. It represents these things. For example, a person will say that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. However, there's a little bit more to it than that. That we also need to include the fact that if a person believes in the Lord Jesus, if they have received the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit lives within them, if Jesus is in their heart effectively, if that's the case, then we would expect to see 
a certain change in that person's life. We would expect to see a reduction of sin in their life. We would expect to see an increase in holiness in their life. And if we do not see these things, then we could question whether or not the faith that they have would qualify as what people often call a saving faith. That they might very well have faith, but they don't have the kind of faith that manifests works, that manifests holiness, that manifests the fruit of the Spirit to our satisfaction. And so what people will then say is that you might very well have salvation to an extent. People will try to make that sound uncertain because they will want to place a stronger emphasis on what follows that, which is the works that they expect a person will perform, that will show up in an individual's life, which means that if they fail to have enough holiness within them, if they fail to have enough works, if they fail to get enough sin out of their lives, then they might very well be one of these people who doesn't really have enough oil. And this is what leads people to be very concerned about what they believe, about who they are, about what they are doing or not doing, and are very concerned about the meaning of this parable. They are concerned because of the contradiction. They are concerned because of the uncertainty. And they are concerned because how will they know if they are able to succeed? How will they know when they succeed? How will they know when they have enough oil? How will they know when they not only have enough, but they have maybe a little bit of a reserve as well because they have done more good works than perhaps they need to? How are they going to be able to answer these kinds of questions? This is what people struggle with quite often, and it leads to a lot of uncertainty in people's lives. So what do they do? Well, in many cases, they just hope for the best, but I can tell you what I personally see people doing how I believe people try to address these kinds of questions of how much is going to be enough? How will you know when you have the right amount of oil? And what I mean by that is that people have made a transition from considering the oil as a symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit to considering it to be a representation of the works that we would expect to occur within a believer's life. People will often do this subtly. They will do this in a way that it can be difficult to see the transition. But that's what happens. When this happens, then people's focus is no longer on the representation of the Holy Spirit within them as their security, as the oil that they require. Their focus will change to their repentance and obedience to their way of life, to how they are living Their attention will be placed on themselves and what they need to do instead of resting in and trusting in what Jesus already did for them. This is a serious matter because the question will remain, how will you know when you have done enough? Well, what I have observed when I have watched people deal with these kinds of questions, some of them I have asked, how do you deal with these kinds of questions? The kinds of answers that I get and the way that I have observed people behaving says to me that the way that most people will try to resolve this uncertainty is by using a 50% rule. 
Looking at the ten virgins, there were five who were able to make it and five who were not. And so maybe we should use a 50% rule and just simply try to identify all of the people around us who consider themselves to be Christians and try to identify at least 50% of the people who we believe are more sinful than we are. If we can succeed in finding enough people to compare ourselves with and say, well, now these people are worse than us, then we can say that we have more oil than they do, and we could perhaps have some sense of confidence that we will be the ones who will be allowed to be a part of the party if we use this parable in order to evaluate these things based on 5 out of 10. Now, I don't think that this is appropriate at all, but I have found that the way that many people tend to live in a religious context who consider themselves to be Christians tend to live this way, which does correspond to the religious life because in the religious life you do need someone to compare yourself with because you will never be good enough. You will never be holy enough. The way that people cope with that is by just simply finding others that are less holy than they are, so that they can say, well, at least I am holy enough considering all of these other wicked, evil people. If the Lord is going to select anyone, he's going to have to select me because I'm better than all of these others. That is what people generally end up with when they pursue a life of repentance and obedience according to the life of Christ that they believe that they are supposed to live, that they believe the Lord expects them to live and fulfill. So for those who don't struggle with a lot of sin, they certainly might find this to be very encouraging. They might find this to be acceptable. They might enjoy this kind of teaching. But for others who do have significant struggles with sin, who do have significant struggles with living the Christian life as many people expect them to live, there is a lot of concern when it comes to a passage such as this because they're worried. And they should be worried. They should be very worried because if that is the correct interpretation of the parable of the ten virgins, then you certainly should be concerned because chances are you are probably one of those in the lower 50%. How are you really going to know otherwise? How are you really going to know for sure? I believe that a person can know for sure that a person can truly know that they are saved. I really do believe that. And one of the reasons why I believe that is because I do not believe that it is appropriate to make a transition like I just made in this parable by saying that the Lord Jesus is speaking about one thing, but we want to think that he is speaking about something else when he's not. He's not talking about you had better get all of the sin out of your life or you are not going to be allowed to be a part of the party of the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you either have the oil, or you don't have the oil, and you're not going to know when the Lord returns. If you have the oil, which I believe is the symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit, exclusively, if that is correct, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are ready. And if you don't, you are not. Consider Matthew chapter 25, verse 3, where it says, Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Certainly in verse 8 it says that their lamps are going out, but effectively, I believe verse 3 conveys that they really had no oil at all. 
That to me is a better representation of the situation here, that you either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. And if you do, then you can have confidence in being able to sleep and rest and wait, knowing that regardless of when the Lord Jesus comes, you will be ready. You will be ready because you can stand on the truth of the gospel. You can be ready because you know that the good news of the Lord Jesus has to do with the restoration of the Holy Spirit and that you either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. You have the oil or you don't. But this is just the beginning. We know that this is just the beginning. This is when you are born again by the Spirit. This is when you can begin to walk in the newness of life. And as you walk in this new way of life that has been presented to you, you will grow to know who He is. And while you grow to know who He is, He grows to know who you are in a unique way, in the mutual relationship that you begin to have as you relate to one another, as you participate in each other's lives, as you participate in His life, being involved in the works that He has for you, and He participates in your life, being involved in your life, as you live your life, as He walks with your feet, as He touches with your hands, as He speaks with your mouth, and as He hears through your ears. Your God grows to know you as you grow to know Him. So in Matthew chapter 25, verse 12, when he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you, you can have confidence that he will not say that to you. Instead, he will be able to say, Assuredly, I say to you, I do know you. Why does he know you? Because of the mutual experience that you have had together while you were here on the earth, living your life, waiting for his return. This is the emphasis that I believe needs to be placed on this parable, is what he says here, that he doesn't know those who are not his. In addition to that, those who are his do know who he is. Consider John, John chapter 17, verse 3, where he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent that they may know you. This is the eternal life. It is a life of knowing your God. And I will continue with this parable in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net